So we're going to continue the John series, and here's J.T. Meyer. Give him a hand. Thank you. Isn't it fun every once in a while we let the, the young whippersnappers lead worship for us? And... Um, hey, uh, so earlier this week, I was doing some research. I was curious to see how many people in America would consider themselves to be a Christian. It was just, it was running through my mind, and I, I didn't really have any idea. I was, I was curious, so I looked at uh, some studies. I was looking online, and, and I found a number of polls, and, and, and most of them were done by these reputable sources like Pew Research, ABC News, all these different sources. Um, and they all kind of said the same thing. They gave this kind of window. But basically, the survey said that anywhere between 70% and 80% of the country considers themselves to be a Christian. And that's a, that's a lot. That's a lot of people. And, and I got to be honest, when, when I heard that number, this isn't an indictment on America, but I thought that seems a bit high to me. That seems a little bit high. And not high as in I think the studies are wrong. I don't think the studies are wrong. I actually think maybe our definition of what it means to be a Christian is wrong. That maybe the, the kind of Western concept of Christianity is not the same as Jesus' definition of what it means to be a Christian. Because think about this. If 80% of our country were like followers of Christ, I think our country would look a little bit different. I think our culture would be a little bit different. And again, this is not... Uh, a criticism of our country, I think that this has been an issue as long as there have been humans. This is a human condition. Here's what I mean. I think as human beings, we have a tendency to warp or distort or mold God's word in order to fit our own narratives, in order to fit our own comfort. Like, what makes us comfortable? Like, eh, this is what, what I kind of feel comfortable with, so this is what I believe. Or this is, this, or maybe it fits our own understanding. Like, I know the Bible says this, but it doesn't really quite make sense, so this is what I believe. And sometimes we do this intentionally, and sometimes we do this unintentionally, but let me just say this. I believe that probably every single person in this room, myself included, does this to one degree or another. We will warp or distort what God says in order to fit our own comforts or our own actions. So big picture, here's what I mean. In our culture, the term Christian could mean any number of things. Like if someone says, yeah, I'm a Christian, it could mean any, you know, any number of things. It could mean... I go to church every once in a while. It could mean my parents were Christians. I grew up in a Christian home. It could mean, you know, I live by a certain set of values. It could mean I, you know, at one point I said a, a prayer. It could mean something like I, I occasionally will read the Bible or I, I, maybe I read it often. It could mean that you believe certain things to be true. 
Maybe it means that you've been baptized, you were baptized once in your life. Maybe it means you, you speak in tongues. It can mean any number of things. And I think that's an issue. That's an issue. So what I think is important is to think about that, to think about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Jesus based off of what he says and not what we think. What it means to be a follower um, based off of his words and not off of our traditions. So today, what we're going to be doing is we're going to continue our series in John, which Michael kicked off last week. And by the way, it was an excellent talk. I encourage you to go back and listen to it. We have CDs that you can grab on the info counter, or you can always go to our website or on iTunes or Uh, any of those kind of places, but please check that out. But we're going to be looking today at a story about a guy who has this very issue. His definition of what it means to be a follower, to be a believer, um, is, is, is different than Jesus's definition. And this was, again, this is not an American issue. This was a first century issue as well. This has been an issue for, for all people. See, he thought he understood what God requires, but Jesus really challenges him and gives a completely different definition of what it means to be a follower. So we're going to be looking at John chapter 3, um, and if you need a Bible, there's Bibles on the stage and in the back uh, on the sound booth, and if you don't have a Bible, please take it home with you, um, but if you guys want to open up to John chapter 3, I'm going to pray real fast. So Holy Spirit... We just ask that you come and speak to us. We pray that your word would be clear and that you would speak directly to our hearts and our minds. Just have your way with us. Amen. All right, John chapter three, starting in verse one. So now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So just I'm going to stop for a second. That seems like a really weird answer to a question that wasn't even asked. Jesus does this a lot where he will seem to to say something that seems like a non sequitur, like he's saying something that's not even a reply to what Nicodemus was saying, and we're going to get into that. So Nicodemus replies, he says, how can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. And just really quick, that term being born of water, that's actually, it was a phrase that meant, natu- that meant childbirth. Because he goes on to say, you should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. So let's dig in a little bit. So there's this guy named Nicodemus, who we'll learn more about in a minute, but he comes to Jesus this, this night, and he, he says, he, he basically is saying this, he's saying, listen, Jesus, I know there's a lot of people out there who don't like you. 
You know, you're pretty controversial and there's a lot of people who don't like you, but I like you. And I know that God sent you to teach us. I know that God has sent you to be a great teacher for us. I mean, it's obvious. Like, look at all these miracles that you're doing. Look at all these signs. It's obvious that you've been sent from God to teach us. And again, Jesus responds very strangely. He doesn't respond to, to what Nicodemus says, he, or at least it seems. He says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So what is Jesus talking about? What's Jesus talking about here? So I'm assuming that probably most of us are somewhat familiar with the phrase born again. We've probably heard it in our culture, you know, the term born again Christian or, or, you know, someone has been born again. And we probably have a lot of preconceived notions or ideas about what that means to be born again. But what does Jesus mean by it? So I want to I ask three questions about what Jesus is saying, what Jesus is talking about with this whole born again thing. I want to ask, how important is it? I want to ask, what is it? And I want to ask, how do we become born again? So let's just jump in. Number one, how important is it to be born again? How important is it? So to answer that question, you don't have to look any further than verse 7, where Jesus says, you must be born again. You must be born again. Apparently to Jesus, this born again thing wasn't an elective. It wasn't, you know, something that was maybe a good idea or for certain people, but it was, he's saying, you must be born again. It was a necessity. And here's what I find really interesting. Nicodemus, who Jesus is talking to, Nicodemus is pretty much the opposite of the type of person that we would assume needs to be born again. He's pretty much the opposite of the the type of person that we would assume needs to be born again. See, typically... Uh, In our culture, we have assumptions about this phrase, born again. And actually, they've done studies, and you know that the majority of our country say they would prefer to not have a neighbor who is born again. Isn't that interesting? And here's why. Because the assumption of what it means to be born again is one of two things. One of two things. Either uh, being born again means someone who is very straight-laced, very religious, very moral, very, uh, you, know, you know, has this high moral standard, this religious standard, or it is, it's, you know, it's one of those people who are a little bit messed up, a little bit emotional, and had, you know, one of those cathartic, uh, you know, emotional experiences with Jesus, and they're a little weird, And so typically people are like, I don't know if I want to live next to that like really uptight person. And I don't know if I want to live next to that weird person. But we look at Nicodemus and and, and listen, let's look at who he was. It tells us that he was a Pharisee, which means that he was already extremely moral. Remember, the Pharisees, they were the rule keepers. 
They had rules upon rules upon rules, and, and, and they were very critical of those who were not rule keepers. It also tells us that he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. This was also known as the Sanhedrin, if you've heard about that. So the Sanhedrin, or the ruling council, was a group of about 70 of the most elite Jewish leaders. And they were to, to basically rule over Israel, um, and they were 70 of the, the wealthiest, smartest, most powerful Jewish leaders. And he was one of these 70. And then Jesus goes on, he even refers to him as the teacher of Israel. If you read a little bit further, he says, you know, the, you are the teacher of Israel. And this was actually a title for, uh, I know it says the teacher, but it's a title for a, a select few, like three or four people that are the most highly regarded uh, Jewish teachers in all of Israel. And, and Nicodemus was one of those people. So he was one of the greatest, this is like, you know, PhD from Harvard, you know, super well respected. It also tells us that he came to Jesus at night, which is very important that he came to Jesus at night. See, it means that he came to Jesus at a time that he knew that no one would see him. He didn't want to be seen. He had a reputation. He, had, he knew that people respected him, admired him, so he came to Jesus under the cover of night. So Jesus looks to this guy who's not, you know, super broken or, or, or he's, super, he's really, really moral, and he says to him, you need to be born again, Nicodemus. He doesn't need more morality. He doesn't need more rules. He, he was a Pharisee. Jesus wasn't saying, you need to clean up your life, Nicodemus. You need to add some of those good old-fashioned Christian values. No. In fact, he was kind of challenging that. He was challenging that. Jesus was going to one of the most moral people in all of Israel and saying, you need to be born again. Not saying you need to add more morality, but challenging it. Essentially, he was saying this. You say, Nicodemus, every good deed, every moral action that you've ever done counts for nothing. And let me clarify what I mean by that. I don't mean that doing good doesn't matter. And I don't think that's what Jesus means. Doing good, you know, being kind to a stranger, doing humanitarian efforts, those are good things and they have value. They have value in this world, but it doesn't have value in getting us closer to God. It doesn't get us closer to God. Or as Jesus puts it, seeing the kingdom of God. It doesn't get us into relationship with God. And we also see that in this story, it's not this emotional, cathartic thing that, that he's calling Nicodemus in. That, are, that you know, that's, It's good for those kind of people who need that kind of thing. We'll see, you know, we'll talk about it later. Nicodemus' life has changed, but not in the way that you may think. He doesn't have this big emotional change. It was, it was something different. It was a gradual change with Nicodemus. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. He's saying everybody needs to be born again. Poor, rich, moral, 
immoral, emotional, non-emotional, everyone. So let me phrase it like this. You need to be born again. Jesus is saying you need to be born again. So then, if Jesus is saying it is extremely important, what does it mean to be born again? Well, I think the implications of being born again are are pretty grand, but I'm going to highlight, I think, three things that Jesus is talking about here. Three kind of rebirths, if you will. The first rebirth I want to talk about is a theological rebirth, like a rebirth of our mind, a rebirth of the way that we think, the way that we understand things. So Nicodemus comes to him and says, I know that you are sent from God to teach us. And Jesus, it seems like, again, it gives him this weird answer about that he needs to be reborn. And obviously Nicodemus doesn't quite understand because he says, what, I'm, I'm supposed to go back into my mother's womb? What are you talking about? And then Jesus goes on to tell this really, even he gets even a little bit more weird. He tells this really obscure story from the book of Numbers. And I'm going to read that to you. It's, it's continuing on in verse 14. Jesus goes on to say, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So what is Jesus talking about here? What is the snake being lifted up? Jesus was referring back to the story in the book of Numbers where the people of Israel had been, they were getting bit by all of these snakes, these venomous snakes. They called them uh, these fiery serpents because their venom caused such pain and anguish and burning sensations. And all of these people were getting bit and they were dying. And so God tells Moses, who was the leader of Israel at the time, he tells them to to form the snake, to build the snake out of bronze and and to lift it up high so that everyone could see. And, And God tells them that if anyone is bitten by a snake, have them look upon this bronze snake and they will be healed. They'll be healed. It's a cool story, but it's a strange one. But it's, it's a story about God's provision, that God you know, healed the people of Israel, and that's cool. But it's, it's a lot more than that. Essentially, Jesus is saying this by quoting that story. He's saying, Nicodemus, you have it all wrong. You got it all backwards. You need a theological rebirth. You think, I've come to be a teacher. Remember, Nicodemus said, I know that God sent you to teach us. He's saying, you think I've come to be a teacher, but I have come to be the savior of the world. I haven't come to teach you. I have come to save you. See, the story of the snake being lifted up, it was point, you know, it's a cool story of God's provision, but it's a story that is pointing forward to Jesus. Just as these people had been infected with this poison that was killing them, we have been infected with this poison of sin that is killing us. And instead of God speaking to the people of Israel and saying, you guys need to figure out an antidote to that poison. Or you guys, you know, you need to start a committee that's like anti-snake. Or maybe start teaching your kids more about snake safety. They need to know more. No, what does he say? He says, you need to be saved. He doesn't give them more teaching. He says, you need to be saved. 
And Jesus is saying the same thing to Nicodemus. You don't need me to be a teacher, Nicodemus. You need a savior. This is why he tells Nicodemus you need to be reborn. You need to have a shift in the way you're thinking. Your way of thinking needs to start over. None of your good deeds can save you, Nicodemus. You need to be theologically reborn. See, what you think is going to get you into the kingdom, what you think is going to get you into, you know, relationship with me, get you saved, however you want to phrase it, it's not going to. And, and we don't totally know, but I assume that when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, we, we don't totally know, but I think that, here's, here's what I assume he was thinking. He was thinking, you know, I'm doing really well. I'm very accomplished, very respected, and I'm doing very well, but I like you, Jesus, and I think I can add some of your teachings to what I've already got. That you, you, you might be able to get me a little bit closer. And Jesus says, I didn't come so you can add my teachings to your life. I've come to save you, Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you're not almost there. You're not, you know, it's not like, oh, Nicodemus, you're doing so well. You've done all of these good things and you're so close. And if you just add this little part, you'd be right there. Or if you could just clean up this area, then, then you could be in relationship with God. Then you could enter in the kingdom. He says, no, you need to be reborn. You need to start from square one. None of those things can save you. None of those things bring relationship. With God. You need to start from square one and all of us, every single one of us needs to start from that same point. And let me be honest, for some of us that's really hard. That can be difficult. Because if all of those things that I've been doing, if they don't get me closer to God, then why have I been doing them? You know, there's another story where Jesus has a similar interaction with a similar kind of guy. It's, it's Jesus and the rich young ruler where Jesus gives this, this kind of famous quote where he says it's easier for, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. And he says a lot of things similar to that. And I don't think he's saying rich people don't get into heaven or that they're worse. But I think he's saying it's hard for them to give up what they've built up. It's hard for people who've built up these earthly things or these, these systems of morality and say, oh, that none of that stuff matters in order to get relationship with you, God. My mom was telling me a story about, you know, early in her, you know, Christian life, she was leading a small group and she was talking about grace um, and just this concept that we don't earn God's pr- approval, we don't earn God's love, that it, it's just freely given to us. And this, this, there was a woman who's a little older than her and just came from a really traditional background, and she looked at my mom and said, so you're saying all those casseroles I made didn't mean anything? All those cakes that I baked for the church don't mean anything? And my mom was like, unfortunately... I mean, they're probably, probably people enjoyed them and they're nice, but they don't, they don't get you closer to God. Some of this stuff can be a hard realization for some of us. 
But let me just say this. If you're here this morning and you feel, man, I just, I have blown it so much. I don't know what I have to offer to God. I've, I've just, I'm, I have such a past. I've been so broken and sinful. The message of rebirth is great news because you get a fresh start. You get, to, you get a fresh start and that you are no further away from God than someone like Nicodemus was. Someone who's extremely moral is not closer to God than you are. You guys, we're, we're all, this message of the gospel, the message of rebirth puts us all on, on solid ground. We're all on even playing field that we all need to be reborn. No matter if we've been extremely moral or if we've been extremely immoral, we all need to be reborn. And, if, and the good news is we get a fresh start with Jesus. See, Jesus didn't come to rearrange your life to clean up a few things over here, he came to rebuild it. He's calling you to be born again. So let me ask you this. Is this good news for you today? Is it? Is that good news? I mean, think about it. Everything that you've worked so hard for, it doesn't give you a leg up. All the things that you've done, your career, maybe ministry, it doesn't get you closer to God. Remember John Wimber had this realization at one point. John Wimber was the founder of the vineyard and he had this realization. He had built this this humongous church and and had a huge following and, and God challenged him one day and said, John, I have seen your ministry. Now come see mine. John, that church that you built, that doesn't get you into the kingdom of God. This isn't just true on the day of salvation. This is true for us every day. We don't earn God's approval. We don't earn God's love. I remember, you know, a number of years back, I had an awful week. I just was, you know, just had such a sinful attitude. I was just not doing well this week. And I remember, I think, I don't remember if I was supposed to preach or I was supposed to lead worship, but I was supposed to do something. And I remember talking to my dad and saying, Dad, I just can't do it. I've been, I've been so sinful this week. And I remember him saying, oh, so Jesus needs your righteousness. So what Jesus did on the cross, that wasn't enough, right? You needed to be a little bit more righteous. And I said, okay, you got a good point. <laughs> How many times do we do things like that? Or we say, God, I can't go to small group. I've been struggling this week. Or I can't, go, I can't go to church. I mean, if those people knew what I did, I mean, I can't go. Or you've got to be so angry with me, God, that I keep on falling into the same sin. You've got to be so mad at me. And I've got, I got to get it. I've got to work my way out of there. It's not how it works. We need a theological rebirth that we don't need more teaching. We need a savior. We need a savior. Jesus come to save us, not to give us more moral teaching. He's not offering us a new way to live. He's offering us new life. That's the gospel. He's not offering us a new way to live. He's offering us new life rebirth. 
So we need a theological rebirth. The next one we need is a spiritual rebirth. We need a spiritual rebirth. So if we look at the, the, the kind of storyline of Nicodemus in the Bible, he's mentioned three times. We see him in this story. Um, later, he's part of the Sanhedrin that Jesus was facing trial in front of. And he's actually the one who says, hey, let's, let's hear him out. So we see a little bit of change in his life where he says, let's hear him out. But later, we, we see this really cool story that's so easy to overlook about Nicodemus. But Nicodemus is actually the one who wrapped Jesus' body and prepared it for burial. Which might get lost a little bit on us today, but that was an intimate thing. That was something that someone would do that, first of all, it was a huge Jewish no-no. He would have been breaking all kinds of Jewish rules and customs by, by doing this. I mean, someone of his stature, someone who is a, a, a man, a man wasn't allowed to do it, all these kinds of things would have made him thoroughly unclean. But he says, I don't care. His life had been changed. His life had been changed. See, Nicodemus had a new identity. See, part of being born again is taking on this new identity. It's, not, it's, 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 it's more than just this new theology. It's more than just a, a new understanding. It's, an, it's, a, it's a new identity. Paul refers to it a number of times as being a new creation. We're, there's something new that happens in us. When we choose to follow Christ, God begins to change us from the inside out. He begins to refine us. He begins to purify us. He begins to sanctify us. Those are all fancy words that means he begins to change us, to grow us. And this doesn't mean we don't struggle. We still struggle. We still mess up. But it means we begin to allow ourselves to be reborn. We start becoming more of the person that God has created us to be. More of the person that God intended from when he was forming us in our mother's womb. He already had a plan for us. And when we choose to follow him, he starts to mold us into that. There's a story about um, Augustine. And, and St. Augustine, he was a brilliant thinker, and he's, he's one of my favorite monks of all time. He's one of the only monks I know. Uh, <laughs> but I, I love Augustine. He's given, uh, given us lots of great wisdom. But before he met Jesus, Augustine, he was basically a sex addict. He was. I don't, he, he didn't use those words, but he was very frank about his life before he met Jesus. Um, but Jesus began to change him, and there's this story that he tells that I think is a beautiful story. But he tells a story about how he goes into town and he comes into contact with this woman that he used to have relations with. And, you know, he's kind to her and they begin to interact. But the connection wasn't the same. They weren't doing the things that they used to do. And she thinks, you know, maybe he doesn't recognize me. Maybe he doesn't recognize me. So she says, you know, Augustine, it is I. And he looks at her and he says, I know, but it is not I. 
He'd been changed. Jesus began to change him. He had been reborn. See, there's a spiritual rebirth that happens in us. And it's not that we become more moral. I mean, that can be a part of it, that we can start making better choices and stuff, but that's, that's not it. It's that we fundamentally become a new creation. There's something new that is formed in us. Because when we lived before we knew Jesus, we begin to take on our identity from all different kinds of things. See, Jesus, is, uh, he intended us to find our identity in him. And before we knew him, we began to find our identity, our security, um, you know, our, you know, all kinds of things, our purpose on things other than Jesus. We began to build these, these houses and these structures up in our life um, of, of our identity and stuff that's apart from God. And God says, you must be reborn so I can make you who I've called you to be. C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's setting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation that is he's building quite a different house than the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor here, running up towers, making courtyards. See, you thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in himself. Jesus has plans for you that that are so much grander, so much more beautiful than you can imagine. They're different. Sometimes they're hard. Sometimes they require struggle. Sometimes they're not as grand on an earthly scale. But Jesus has plans for you that are beautiful. And this part of this rebirth is saying, I want to be a new creation. I want to be who you made me to be, Jesus. And again, for some of us, this is hard. For some of us, this is hard. And, and listen, I don't mean, like, I, when I met Jesus, I still listen to the same style of music. I still wear the same kind of clothes. I'm not talking about stuff like that. Jesus wants to make you into something beautiful. He didn't come to, to, you know, to, to clean up a little bit. He came to completely reform. It's a spiritual rebirth. So finally, it's a relational rebirth. Here's what I mean by that. God is calling you to be born again into his family. He wants to call you a son. He wants to call you his daughter. He wants to be um, in an intimate relationship with you. He's calling you to be reborn into relationship with him. See, Jesus isn't just coming to save us from sin. He's not just calling us to, to be our Lord, 
to, you know, to guide us, but he's calling us to, to be in relationship with us. He loves you. He loves you. He wants to call you his son. He wants to call you his daughter. Other parts of the Bible, it talks about how we are adopted in. Jesus phrases it like that we are reborn in to be a part of his family, and this is so important. Listen, he's not just, he is the king. He's the king of the universe that holds everything in order. He's our savior, but he's not just that. He is, he is so intimate with us. He says he knows every hair on your head. He's our good father. And he wants you to know that even though you've been estranged, even though that you are over here, that you can be reborn into his family, into relationship with him. So finally, how do we become reborn? How do we become born again? I love this. Right after this interaction with Nicodemus, we have the most famous Bible verse in the entire Bible. John 3.16. And just a real quick, just history lesson. So the Bible, the New Testament, is written in Greek. And one thing about Greek is they don't have quotation marks. So we're not entirely sure if this was Jesus saying John 3.16 or if it was John, the author of the book, giving his commentary on what Jesus said. Which is why some of you guys will look at your Bible and this will be red letters. Some of you will look at your Bible and this will be in black letters. Um, and, and, and it's not, I don't know if it's super important, but I, I can give you my opinion. I think this is John. I think John is giving his recap of what Jesus just said to Nicodemus. So let's look at John 3.16. And then we'll look at John 3.17 as well because I, I really like that one as well. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into this world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's good news. That's such good news. And it's good news for all people. Not just the moral people, not just the immoral people. It's this God so loved the world. That world means all of humanity. God loves all of humanity. All of humanity. And it's, it says in verse 17, he didn't come to condemn Jesus didn't come to this world to condemn. He came to save. So just as an aside, think, think just for a moment, what is the message that, that you or that we are giving to, to non-believers? Is it a message of a God that is just ready to condemn? That is so, just wants to condemn the world and that's, full of anger? Or is it a message of a God that so loved the world, that wants to save the world? 
So what, is it, what does it say that we need to do to receive this, to receive salvation, to receive eternal life, to receive relationship with God? It says to receive eternal life, which, by the way, doesn't just mean heaven. It means eternal life starting today. It means fullness of life. It means eternity now and in the future. It means full completeness and abundant life today. What does it say we need to do to receive that? It says we need to believe. Believe. That word believe comes from the Greek word pisteu. And that, that word, it doesn't mean believe like we understand information. It doesn't mean like we, under, we get some information, we say that makes sense, okay. It's not what it means. It actually, it means to, to, to place your trust in. To, to trust in, in, in something. It, uh, you could say to have faith in something. It's active. It's active. It's, 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 it's an action. It's almost like, think about the chair that you're sitting in. You can understand intellectually that it has four legs and it can, it can support body weight. But the action would be to sit in it, to trust that it will hold you. Similar. We trust in Jesus. We place our trust in him. We actively believe. Now, let me just say, for some of us, I know me saying this, I know there's probably a few that are prone to, to feel scared about that. Like, oh, do I really believe? Do I, do I really put my trust in? Let me just say, really quick, if you are asking that question, it is a pretty good indication that you are in a pretty good place. So don't, don't, don't let this scare you. We put our trust in Jesus. That doesn't mean we don't stumble. That doesn't mean we don't doubt. I wrestle with doubt. It's all a part of the normal Christian life. It's like what it says in Mark chapter nine, verse 24. This is a prayer that I say to Jesus quite often in my life. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Jesus, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. It's putting our faith in Jesus when it doesn't make sense. Putting our trust in Jesus. And it it also doesn't matter how strong our faith is. It doesn't give a measure like you have to have this much amount of belief. I love this Tim, Tim Keller quote. He says, it's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. See, what saves us and brings us into relationship with God is, is, is putting our faith into Jesus. It didn't say, whoever can look at the, the, the snake for 15 seconds, then they'll be saved. We just gaze upon him. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Fixing your eyes on him. And this, this goes back to even the relationship thing. This is relationship. Walking it out with him, day by day. We have bad days, and I, and I, you know, I love in Second Timothy. It even tells us that even when we are faithless, he is faithful. All we need to do is just believe. I'm going to put my trust 
in you, Jesus. Put my trust in you, Jesus. So here's how I want to end. Why don't we stand?